This is the Toasted Sister podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. Toasted Sister is two years old. I released the very first episode on January 5th, 2017. Can you believe it? I can't believe it either. And since then, I've interviewed more than 50 indigenous chefs, farmers, and entrepreneurs from all across the country. That's more than 24 hours of audio content. So this is the 46th episode, and there's plenty more on the way. So let's get on with this episode. Did you know President Andrew Jackson passed a law in 1834 that banned Native Americans from operating distilleries on Indian reservations? Yep. It was based on racist beliefs that Native people could not be trusted with making alcohol. So 184 years later, H.R. 5317, or the Repeal for Prohibition on Certain Alcohol Manufacturing on Indian Lands Act, changed that. It was signed into law by President Donald Trump on December 11, 2018. And supporters of the law, including the Confederated Tribes of the Chehalis Reservation, pushed it through Congress for a couple of reasons. To first, get rid of an outdated racist law that no longer has a place here. And second, to open the door for tribes to get into the distilling business if they want to. In this episode, I talk with Curtis Basney, co-owner of the Copper Crow Distillery, which is the only native-owned and operated distillery in the country. It's located on the Red Cliff Reservation boundaries in Wisconsin. How, you ask? We'll get into how this distillery came to be while there was still prohibition on the res, so stay tuned. Okay, I'm uh, uh, Curtis Basney. I'm a member of the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians, retired from the Wisconsin State Highway Patrol, and then uh, owned and operated a small business on the reservation, a gas station convenience store that my father started a number of years ago uh, until having sold that. And then my wife and I decided to, to open up a distillery and make spirits. All right. So tell me about the distillery. It's called the Copper Crow, right? It is called Copper Crow Distillery. We looked at at starting a distillery when we when we travel. Uh, typically, we like to take in breweries and wineries and distilleries, and just uh, uh, as part of our vacation plans, and just see what's going on in, in the industry. Um, and we then uh, said, "Boy, that's that's kind of an interesting concept." So then we started going to uh, to a couple of conferences. There is an opportunity here in. Northern Bayfield County, Wisconsin, to be able to capitalize on some tourism by getting into the spirits business. This is a pretty uh, uh, touristy area. We have a national park, fossil uh, Islands, uh, Lake Superior. I mean, it's just, it's just a beautiful place. But uh, but nobody up here is producing any spirits. We've got uh, a couple of wineries in the area. We have a brewery in the area. But again, nobody doing any spirits. So we looked at that from a business standpoint and decided, uh, you know, maybe we should throw some money at a professional business plan and see if the numbers work out. And they did. So then we we made the decision to go ahead and uh, uh, put in a distillery. We began that process probably in 2016 and had to uh, first build a building and then start acquiring some equipment. And then we made application to the federal government for a basic distiller's permit. Uh, that, was, uh, that was granted um, in March, I believe, of 2016. Once we were uh, granted the distiller's permit, went ahead then and 
uh, amassing equipment and, and completing the building, and here, here we are today. So this distillery is on res- reservation land, is it? Or how, how does that work? Because there, there, back then, there was, uh, there was prohibition. Uh, right. So um, the, the property that our distillery is on is actually it's within the boundaries of the Red Cliff Reservation, but it's property that my wife and I actually hold title to. So it's considered uh, what they call fee simple land. So we uh, we own title to the property. So uh, so being fee simple land, um, we were taxed. It's actually a taxable property. When we made our application, it was it was then our understanding, not that we were looking to circumvent any laws, mind you, but uh, uh, we looked at it from the standpoint is that it's technically not uh, trust land or or Indian land per se. So so we went ahead with our plans. To establish the distillery. What kinds of challenges did you get from the native community that's just, you know, in the area? Uh, I know there's lots of, uh, you know, maybe hard feelings people might have about, you know, having a distillery, having any kind of alcohol inside and so near to a native reservation. So on our reservation, um, we, we have a casino that serves intoxicating beverages. We have a couple of stores that sell intoxicating beverages. But when we proposed our plan to build a distillery, for the most part, uh, it, the, the reaction was actually quite positive. Uh, we had a couple of people that obviously were saying, you want to do what? Once they understood that we were not looking to, to produce a, an inferior or a cheaper product, that we were looking to actually pr- produce an artisanal product, again, we were not, uh, um, not looking to cater towards the native community to be primary customer base. But again, we, you know, we, we had a couple of people that were somewhat opposed until they found out exactly what our business plan was. And then for the most part, been very, very positive. And it's been received very positively, um, not only in the native community, but in the surrounding communities, and has gotten um, uh, the support of, uh, of our tribal governing body, our tribal council. Anytime that you can do something and promote small business and private enterprise, uh, it's a win-win situation, especially in, uh, in Indian country when we can look at creating an industry and using uh, um, local raw ingredients and hiring uh, people and providing uh, education and job opportunities, uh, people realize that, uh, you know, this, from an economic standpoint, this is a, this is a win-win situation for everybody. So uh, our primary customer base is those uh, people who are, are here experiencing the Bayfield area as tourists. Uh, again, we're in a very, very highly touristed area. Uh, we've got a lot of people who, who come for, uh, uh, for vacations and weekend visits and even day trips. Uh, and then quite a few of those people fall in love with the area and then decide to, uh, to build summer homes um, and, and condos and things like that. So so the bulk of our business is certainly uh, tourism-related. Uh, you know, we're so glad uh, that somebody has done something and given us a, a, an alternative place to go to, uh, to relax and, and uh, perhaps have a cocktail or not. It's, it's very different than what typically goes on um, in, the, in the Bayfield and surrounding area. Okay. All right. So tell me about uh, some of these spirits and what are we talking about? What are, we talk- are we talking about uh, like vodka and, and rum? 
So right now, um, the, the product that we have uh, available in our retail area is a vodka. Uh, it's made from wheat. We're also working on a number of other spirits. Uh, we've got uh, several different whiskeys in barrels, rye whiskeys, bourbons, wheat whiskeys, and obviously those have to age for a number of years in order to become mature. So in the interim, we have this vodka, and all of our cocktails right now are based upon uh, vodka. So we also, um, several months ago, put some rum into a barrel. Uh, that is very near maturity. We're in a fruit district up here, so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of apples and locally grown fruit, strawberries and raspberries. But we created, uh, or developed, I should say, an apple brandy made from, from locally pressed apple cider. We've got two barrels of that. One should be mature uh, next fall. Uh, another one mature the fall after that. One of the unique things that we're working on is a vodka that's made from whey. And whey, uh, think Little Miss Muffet, uh, whey is a byproduct of making cheese. There is a fermentable sugar in the, in the whey once the cheese is, is done being made. We have uh, figured out how to ferment that sugar. Uh, it's a very complex sugar, uh, and it doesn't like to ferment. So currently, there are probably less than a dozen distilleries in the whole entire world who are making a spirit from whey. Again, we figured it out. Um, we're, we're producing it, although we don't have it yet for sale. And we have teamed up with the university here in Wisconsin to assist us to make that a bit more of an efficient process. Because again, the sugar is so complex, we're not able to capitalize on all of those fermentable sugars as we would really like to. But it's kind of interesting when you can take a product that is otherwise generally considered a waste and then turn it into something that has economic value. Right, that's really interesting. And I've never really seen the the distilling process before. Can you just take me through like some of the basics? Um, you get, you know, wheat to a clear vodka. How, how does that happen? Sure. So in the case of, uh, of grains primarily, grains are full of starches. Uh, so our potatoes so are just, just about, you know, a number of other things that you can make spirits out of. But what we do is we then um, cook those starches, uh, and that begins to allow the starches to be converted into sugar. So we take those starches and we cook them, and then we, we put in um, malt. And the malt then has the enzymes, which will take the starches, convert them to sugars. Once we've converted them to sugars, then we can put the yeast in there, and the yeast consume the sugar and give off two products. One of those products is carbon dioxide. The other one is alcohol. So once the fermentation with the yeast is complete, then we can take that mash, and we can put it into the still and gently heat it, and the alcohol that's in there will vaporize, uh, and then we run it through a condenser, recondense those vapors back into alcohol, uh, and then we can, uh, can cut it down to our desired proof uh, and filter it and bottle it. It's a bit more complex than that, but that's, uh, right. that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> 
Okay. All right. Uh, so, so you know, uh, breweries and microbrews are uh, breweries are popping up all over the place, and it seems like we are uh, just in love with beer uh, these days. Do you see something like that for uh, d- distilleries? Do you think there's going to be more of them popping up uh, now that you know uh, n- now that we have this wave of appreciating alcohol uh, in the in these different ways through microbreweries? Um, you know, the same thing is going to happen with distilleries, and it already is happening. It, uh, it began uh, a number of years ago in the wine industry, and pretty soon there's all these little uh, mini wineries all over. Mm-hmm. Then the, uh, the beer or brewery industry got involved, so now there's microbrews all over the place. So now that same thing is happening to distilleries. Mm-hmm. As, uh, as the regulations have slowly begun to relax, more and more uh, individuals are getting involved in a micro distillery business and uh, uh, putting out real high quality small batch spirits. I see not only the wine industry and the beer industry, but also the spirits industry uh, continuing to grow at an exponential rate over the next uh, um, several decades. I, I remember the days when you know when you walked into a place to get a beer and you didn't have that many choices. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the beer um, really wasn't that good. And now you can go to just about any small town in America, and you can get a locally crafted beer that is so rich and so full of flavor. Uh, it's just, uh, and, and that's the way that <clears throat> that's the way that the spirits industry is going to go. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm I'm growing up in a good time to be drinking beer. I mean, I wasn't old enough uh, uh, to to know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, going to the bar and having just like a couple of, you know, two choices. Um, you know, every time I've been to a bar since I was like 21, there's been so many different choices. So, um, uh, and, and I want to ask you about uh, what what are some of your favorite ways to drink drink vodka. I don't, I don't often drink, um, you know, spirits. Uh, I, I've drink, uh, and if, and if I do, my go-to is either a whiskey or a vodka and it's mostly just like, uh, a cranberry and a, and a vodka or like a, uh, you know, a Sprite cranberry and a vodka. Well, what's your favorite way? What's uh, maybe one of the, uh, better selling cocktails on the menu there at Copper Crow? So, uh, I likewise am, um, a fan of artisanal whiskey. Uh, but again, whiskey's got to age in a barrel for a number of years before it becomes mature. Right. So, so right now we have this vodka offering. Um, and our vodka is good enough and smooth enough that uh, you, you can drink it straight. Mm-hmm. And because we, because we ferment on the grain and then distill on the grain, we're carrying over very, very subtle notes of the wheat. So that being said, if I'm not drinking it straight then we have a number of artisanal cocktails that we're using, uh, and they change from season to season. So one of our more popular cocktails is called a frog bite, uh, and that is our take on a um, vodka margarita. Uh, it's, it's absolutely incredible. It's probably our best-selling cocktail. Um, we also, believe it or not, have an old-fashioned that's made from vodka and then a wine uh, reduction. Um, and that uh, likewise gets great, great reviews. A number of drinks, uh, like you were talking about, say for example, um, cranberry-infused vodka that's um, mixed into some of our cosmopolitans. From our vodka that we're currently producing, my favorite cocktail would probably have to be the Frog Bite. 
the, the vodka margarita. How, how did you guys come to call it the frog bite? Um, <laughs> that's, a very, uh, that's a very interesting story. So um, my father-in-law, who likewise is a tribal member, uh, and as a matter of fact, one of the very first um, Red Cliff tribal members uh, who engaged in commercial fishing on Lake Superior as part of what was called the Gurno decision. So, uh, so anyway, my father-in-law, um, one of his grandchildren several years ago was sitting on his lap, uh, and uh, uh, Grandpa has uh, a number of little uh, skin tags on his neck. Are you familiar with little skin tags? Yeah, yeah, I know what those yeah. look like. So, uh, so anyway, uh, one of the grandchildren was kind of pulling at those little skin tags and says, Grandpa, what are these? And uh, Grandpa's full of BS, uh, and he said, well, he said, those are frog bites. And he said, well, what? How did you get those? And uh, uh, Grandpa said, well, he said, when I was uh, very young, he said, I was, uh, I was lazy, and I spent a lot of time sleeping in the grass. And he said, uh, the frogs would come up and, and bite me on the neck and create all of these little frog bites. He said, since, since that time, he says, I've, I've learned that being lazy is not the thing to do. But he still has the little frog bites. So, uh, so that's, how we, uh, that's how we named that cocktail the frog bite. <laughs> I love that. That's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so these drinks sound uh, pretty delicious, and alcohol is pretty delicious. I mean, you, you drink it to have a good time, to spend time with your friends and sometimes your family. Thousands of, of recipes for uh, cocktails, and, you know, we mentioned all these microbrews everywhere. Um, and, and, it, and, you know, there's no room for stereotypes in in, you know, the bar, in the tasting room, in the tap room, um, at least for, you know, maybe drinkers like me and you. Um, what do you think about, you know, overcoming the stereotypes, um, uh, you know, of Native Americans and alcohol? And, and I think that's going to lead us to a, a, a different conversation a little bit later about the uh, prohibition law being repealed. Uh, so, but, but what, what do you think about you know, just overcoming those stereotypes? I think, first of all, we've got to go way, way back in history. Um, when, um, you know, yeast, yeast will find a way to ferment. Um, so you, you cannot stop it. You can control yeast, but you cannot stop the fermentation process. So this has been going on since before the time of man, when the local fruits, um, and or other uh, harvestable things uh, would somehow get infected with yeast, uh, and then over time, that yeast would take and turn those sugars into alcohol. So alcohol has been here since before the time of man. It's only within the past several thousand years that man has figured out how to control that yeast uh, in order to, uh, to make the wine or beer or mead or spirits that he so wants. Um, and I guess I'm a you know, I'm a firm believer that as, as Native peoples, I mean, we're extremely smart. Um, and and I firmly believe that our ancestors were able to, to, to determine that if they took some of the local harvested fruits, allowed them to sit around in a vessel for a little while, that the yeast would find a way to turn them into alcohol. This has been going on forever. 
Uh, so I don't think alcohol is anything relatively new to the Native community. Obviously, there are individuals, not only in the Native community, but in all different communities, who um, struggle with uh, dependency issues, whether it's alcohol or drugs or something else. It's, it's certainly not uh, something that is unique uh, to Native America. Right. Um... <sighs> You've gotten the approval of the uh, Native community uh, so far, or maybe most of the Native community so far. Uh, do you see maybe a change in how alcohol is viewed in uh, the Native community? Um, I, think, uh, I think there are certainly um, uh, Native communities that um, um, will not support alcohol in any way or fashion. Um, there, there are uh, prohibitions in alcohol in various reservations across the country. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I, I think, uh, or I, I'm at least optimistic that um, as more and more tribes and perhaps even tribal members begin to look at creating business and creating jobs, that they will look towards, um, towards either wineries or breweries or distilleries to be able to provide jobs economic development, training, and, and certainly employment. I'm optimistic that, uh, that tribes will get on this and move forward to create this, uh, this economic boom. Tribal economics it is one of the reasons why the Repeal for Prohibition on Certain Alcohol Manufacturing on Indian Lands Act was passed earlier this month in December. Um, can you talk about that and, and uh, what you think that means for Indian country? Sure. So back in 1834, the 23rd Congress of the United States actually prohibited all alcohol in Indian country on Indian lands. A big portion of that was repealed back in the, the 1950s. So then all of a sudden in the 50s, to, you could start seeing alcohol on reservations. You could see that there were, uh, you know, a few bars or maybe some restaurants that carried some, some beer and some other things. But that very, very small sentence was down there that still prohibited the manufacture of distilled spirits uh, on Indian lands. So it really wasn't until most recently when the Chalais tribe out of southwestern Washington state uh, began to look at incorporating a brewery and a distillery on their reservation. Obviously, there was no prohibition against breweries, but somebody uh, managed to dig up that, that old, old section of law and says, geez, guys, I'm sorry, but you, know, you cannot put a distillery on your reservation because of this prohibition that goes all the way back to 1834. So, so it was actually, um, I believe, the Chalais tribe who then contacted some legislators and said, you know, we want to do this, and uh, um, it, has, uh, it has to do with, with providing jobs and providing um, uh, economic development on our reservation. Let's introduce some legislation to have that portion repealed so that tribes can, uh, can begin to enjoy the same um, activities or, um, in regards to, to distillation that all other non-tribes uh, have been able to do for, for quite a long time. So you can uh, definitely thank the, the Chalais tribe for beginning, uh, beginning those discussions, having those bills introduced, 
uh, went to the president's desk and he signed it just a couple of weeks ago. So that prohibition in Indian country is now lifted and those tribes that want to pursue a business in distillation do not, uh, do not have that prohibition hanging over their head. What kinds of economic benefits can you see coming from a tribe uh, getting into uh, this kind of business? You know, again, I think, uh, I think it has uh, entirely to do with, uh, with jobs and the creation of jobs. What, what's kind of unique is that it's a little bit of a technical field, and it involves a fair amount of science and math, physics, you know, some, some other types of things. And, and I can see that right now there are jobs. There are jobs in these industries in wine and beer and spirits that uh, those of our young people who have an interest can go to college and take courses to specifically get into those fields. Um, all we've got to do is pique their interest and hold their interest in the math and sciences. Uh, you know, I, I think the benefits are going to be multifaceted, not only from, uh, from creating employment and creating jobs and enterprise, but providing um, educational opportunities for, for those who want to pursue these careers. Uh, yeah, you're, you're the first um, uh, alcohol maker <laughs> on, on my radio show, and I'm glad you could you could join me because I really wanted to talk about it being an issue of you know stereotypes, but still getting a look at a company like yours, I think would benefit people, especially if they they are really just you know against all alcohol in native communities because you know, a certain amount of closed-mindedness there sure. and you, you understand it because you you know those people have seen hurt they have seen oh, yeah. Yeah. you know alcohol destroy their family and i get it and i just want to present this side also uh, you know our our family uh my family my wife's family certainly have not been immune to that at all mm-hmm. you know we have uh, family members who have struggled with dependency issues and still do to this day um but um alcohol is not is not the evil, uh, you know, and I, as a producer, I am not the devil. You know, um, alcohol sometimes catches uh, catches a bad rap, um, and it, and it's not alcohol that's evil; it's the abuse of such that uh, that creates problems. One thing you never asked is um, how'd you come up with the name Copper Crow? All right, how'd you come up with the name <laughs> Copper Crow? Okay, so um, so copper. Um, because there, there is copper that's used in the, uh, in the industry. The, the plates that our uh, spirit goes through generally are made from copper. Um, copper has a tendency to pull some of the sulfates out. Um, copper is a great conductor of heat, uh, as you well know if you've got any uh, copper-clad pans at home. Um, and also because copper, copper was a very important trade item to, uh, to those of our tribes, like, like my tribe here in the Great Lakes region, copper was a very important trade item between the tribes and the early Europeans. And then, uh, of course, uh, uh, the word copper is, uh, um, the short word for copper is cop. And uh, frankly, I used to be in law enforcement, so kind of a little bit of a play on words there. I, w- I was a copper. So, and, uh, and crow... Um, Crow, because there are just some incredible um, native cultures and stories that are associated with the crow. In in our particular culture, um, crow helps 
all black. Uh, if you if you get on the website, take a look. Um, it's all black. Um, crows are extremely intelligent. They can uh, the, the, uh, facial recognition. You know, if you feed crows out your back door, they know when you're feeding them or when somebody else is. Uh, they're they're just they can use tools. They're they're just extremely extremely smart. And if you ever find yourself in possession of a feather from a crow, take a look at it in the light, and um, it reflects all the colors. I mean, it is just beautiful. It's like looking at a rainbow, hmm. and all of those colors are on that feather, and they're all hanging out there, and they're all getting along together. And wouldn't that be great if? All of our societies, no matter what color you are, no matter what religion you are, no matter nothing like that, if we could all just hang out and get together and, and be peaceful about it. That was Curtis Basney, co-owner of the Copper Crow Distillery. For more information on this establishment, visit coppercrowdistillery.com or follow the team on Facebook. Toasted Sister is supported by the Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation. It plays regularly on KCZY Radio. That's the Navajo Technical University radio station in Crown Point, New Mexico. That's where I'm from. And this podcast is part of the weekly lineup on The River, that's R-I-V-R, Rising Indigenous Voices Radio. Check out theriver.net to hear more contemporary Native music. They also have a River app, so check that out too. Music was created for Toasted Sister by CWION. Check out this duo's great Mississippi Hill Country Blues music on Bandcamp or at CWION.com. That's C-W-A-Y-O-N.com. Also, their tour is coming up really soon. They'll be out and about in Arizona and California from January 25th to February 3rd, so follow the band on social media. And as always, thank you so much for listening. 